0: I invite you to turn over now with me in your Bibles to John chapter 1, Gospel of John, first chapter. Last week we began our study of the first 18 verses, often called the prologue. And as you might remember, we focus especially on the person and work of John the Baptist, the very first person to bear witness to the person and work of Jesus of Nazareth, Jesus the Messiah. Today I want to come back to the prologue, but this time I want to focus much more intently on how John the writer introduces Jesus and his story of Jesus. And and here is where it might be helpful for me to point out that each of the Gospels has its own way of telling the story of Jesus and each of the Gospels has its own way of introducing the story of Jesus. They're all different, and they're all great. And by the way, if you're interested in looking closely at how each of the Gospels begins, I can refer you to our Story of Scripture Bible study, it's like Sessions 100 to 102. That's on our church website. But for today, what I want to do is I, I just want to point out that the other Gospels begin with things like how Jesus is the Son of David or the seed of Abraham, or the second and better Adam, or the Messiah, the Son of God, miraculously conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary. But John does not begin his story of Jesus with any of those things. Now, to be clear, he wouldn't disagree with any of those things. In fact, he talks about some of those things later in the letter. But that is not where John begins his story of Jesus. John, instead, takes us back in time much, much further. I want to take a look at this. Okay, we're going to read the entire prologue. John chapter 1, verses 1 to 18. So starting John 1, verse 1. In the beginning was Has made him known. Now, I'm pretty sure that that is the most well known opening to any book in the New Testament. In fact, I think there's only one book in the whole Bible that has a more well known opening. Any ideas which book I would think? I think the book of Genesis. Because I think most people could quote here, could quote Genesis 1, verse 1. And as you remember, we read the opening verses of Genesis earlier. But now that we've read, the opening verses of John's gospel, what stands out? If you try to think back to Genesis 1 and now John 1, you can tell that John 1 is clearly designed and written to take us back in our minds to Genesis chapter 1. Did you feel that? What are some of the connections between the two? I mean, the most obvious, it's probably the first words, right? In the beginning. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. John 1, in the beginning was the Word. Verse 2, he was in the beginning with God. Verse 3, all things were created through him. Okay. Second, did you notice the emphasis on the Word of God in both Genesis 1 and John 1? Genesis 1, God speaks, and whatever God says happens. I love how the psalmist describes the creation story later in Psalm 33. He says, by the word of the Lord, the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth, all their host. John 1 also highlights the word through which all things were created. But as we're going to discuss later, it's clear that the word in John 1 takes on like additional meaning, or in other words, it doesn't refer simply to a spoken word or command, or message. In John 1, the word refers to a person. And third, did you notice the use of light and darkness in both Genesis 1 and John 1? In Genesis 1, darkness was over the face of the deep, but then what happens? We hear the word of God. Let there be light. And then what happens? The light begins to shine, and the light dispels the darkness. That was the original creation story, and I wonder, maybe is John introducing something of a new creation story? Now, more could be said about those things, but I just wanted to point out some of the connections. Now, before we get further into the text, I want to I pause and I want to share a quick story of something that comes to my mind Basically, every time I stop and think about the prologue to John's Gospel. Maybe you have certain stories in your own life that are connected to specific texts of Scripture. So anytime you're in those texts, you think back to those events. For the prologue of John's Gospel, there's one that always comes to my mind. And I think it's going to illustrate something that we may have forgotten since we've become so familiar with these words Okay. So, as, as many of you know, some of you might not, but Trish and I have spent a lot of time in Turkey over the years. Uh, before moving to Minnesota, I taught at a Bible college in Wisconsin for about 10 years. And one of the greatest joys of those years is that we would take students with us over to Turkey every summer. And through that, we became really close friends with many Turkish people, several of whom are still in close contact today. Well, anyway, about 10 years ago, one of those close Turkish friends happened to be finishing up a degree in history from one of the premier universities uh, in Turkey. And she happened to be studying ancient Greek. Now, since I had already been teaching ancient Greek for a long time, by that point, I decided to give her a Greek reading quiz to see how she was doing and see if I could help her out a little bit. Now, now this friend, okay, basic, uh, pretty much along with everyone else that we know there, uh, was a Muslim. And so I assumed that she had not read much, if anything, from the Bible. Okay? So what old Greek text do you suppose I pulled out for this pop quiz? I decided to have her translate the prologue to the Gospel of John. And this was a lot of fun. At least I thought it was. But it was also really interesting. Okay, why? It was because our friend had never even heard these verses before. And so as she read the Greek text, she kept coming across the word, logos, the Greek word that is translated, And our English text says the word. But think about it. She was reading this for literally the first time. And on the one hand, I mean, she's a couple verses in, and there were extraordinary claims being made about the word. Like the word has always existed, is fully God, and is responsible for All that's here. But on the other hand, because she had never even heard of this text before, she was also confused by it. And she wanted an answer to two questions. Can you imagine what they were? The questions were Who is the Word? Right? Because it didn't take long for her to realize that the Word must be a person the way it's being talked about. And then second, why does the author keep calling this person the word? Okay. Now those are good questions. And I wonder what you might say in response. Okay. Who is the word? Now I imagine most of us have a pretty good idea of what answer we would give to that. But I but I want to look to the text again. Okay. When does John finally tell us the answer to that question? Okay, there are hints throughout the passage. Okay, but if you wanted to, to show someone the answer to the question, who is the word, how far into the text would you have to go? I think you would get at least to verse 14 before you could really start to be clear. Like the word became Flesh and dwelt among us. Okay. But that still doesn't quite answer the question. I mean, it's saying the Word, the eternal Word, became a human being, but which human being? The answer to that is not given until almost the very end of the prologue, it comes at the very end of John 1, verse 17. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Now, second, why then does John introduce Jesus and call Jesus the Word? Okay, now, for one thing, that, that phrase or that word, the Word, would have connected with all of the readers at this time. Okay, as we've seen, there's a lot in Genesis 1 about the power of God's word. Jews knew of the creative, life-giving power of the word of God. But the Greek word logos was also used a lot in the first century, too, by Greek-speaking people to refer to things like reason. They had their own thoughts about the word. And so John seems to take a word, the word, that would have connected with everyone, and push them all, Jews and Greeks, to rethink it. To see what he wants them to see about Jesus. That Jesus Christ is the eternal word. The flawless, complete, and stunning revelation of all that God is. That's the big picture of the prologue. Now I want to walk right through the text and let John introduce us in his own way to the person who changed his life. This is going to be a deep dive. It's going to be quick, but it's going to be a deep dive into some of the deepest doctrines of Christ. So look at verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. As I said earlier, the other Gospels have their own way of introducing Jesus. They often emphasize Jesus' birth, or that he's David's son, or Abraham's offspring. But John takes us back much further, to the time before time, to the time when nothing existed except God. And what does John say? In the beginning was the Word. This is a clear claim to the preexistence, of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. In fact, texts like this one became some of the most important for the church in the first few centuries as they sought to articulate clearly the right view of the person of Christ. And for example, one of the the most well-known early heresies about Jesus is, is connected to a man named Arius, who made this claim about Jesus. He said, there was once when he was not. It's a good summary of one of the earliest heresies that that the early church dealt with. This claim about Jesus that there was once when he was not. John disagrees with that. In the beginning was the word. And he goes on, and the word was with God. Now the, these words are so simple and so plain, <laughs> but these thoughts are deep and really profound. The word was with God. And now now by God there, what do you think John is referring to? The word was with God. By God there, John is referring to the person of God the Father. So in this sense, there is some distinction between the Word and God. Right? There's a distinction between the person of the Son and the person of the Father. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. Okay, so what's the emphasis so far? Since before time began, the Word, the Son of God, has always been. And He has always been in a close, intimate relationship with God the Father. Now, in a later study, I actually want to come back to some of that relationship more, because this is a big theme throughout John's Gospel. But for now, we'll just note that that relationship between the Word, the Son, and God, the Father, is intimate, unique, and eternal. But then John goes on. He says, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Now, that may be the boldest of all the claims. Not only has the Word always been in the closest relationship with God, John says the Word was God. Now again, as you can imagine, that that has been discussed a lot and debated a lot and used a lot in the church councils and so forth. The Word was with God and the Word was God. Now, as I mentioned earlier, the second line, and the Word was with God, implies there's some distinction between the Word and the Word. And God, because the Word was with God. There's a distinction between the person of the Son and the person of the Father. John's emphasis in saying the Word was with God is there's this int- intimate, eternal relationship. But then John follows it up immediately. It says, "And the Word was God." What do you do with that? What is the emphasis? This emphasizes their full equality. <laughs> that the Word was fully God. This is not saying that the Word, the Son, is identical to God the Father. After all, the last phrase said the Word was with God. But this is a claim that the Word, who has always been with God the Father, is himself fully God. And on this, I really like the net translation, which actually says it that way. The Word was with God, and the Word was fully God. I think that's the emphasis. All in all, then, these opening lines contain, in brief, the clearest biblical support for the historic Christian Orthodox view of the person of Christ. The Son of God is a distinct person within the triune God, and yet the Son He is always and forever fully God. Now to verse 2, it simply reinforces verse 1. That one was in the beginning with God. This very person, the eternal word, was in the beginning with God. Now verse 3. All things were made through him. Without him was not anything made that was made. It doesn't get more comprehensive than that, right? All things were made through him. Without him, nothing was made that was made. This is right in line with our New Testament reading that Angie just read. Remember Colossians 1.16? For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions, rulers or authorities, all things were created by him and for him. God the Father created all that is through the work of Jesus Christ, his Son. The living and eternal word. Now, one of the key implications of this, by the way, is that we owe our existence entirely to Jesus. Did you think about that today? I tried to pray about this in the earlier prayer because I've been thinking about this. Without Christ, not one of us would be here today. And I don't just mean here in the building. like We would not be here at all if Christ hadn't made us. Now, verse 4. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Now, think back to the original creation story in Genesis, where all life and all light comes through the word of God. That's why we read 19 verses from Genesis 1 today. And yet, as we read through John's gospel, it doesn't take long to realize that the word, Jesus Christ, is also the only source of spiritual life, eternal life, of true light and illumination. Okay, Think back to the original story. In the original creation story, darkness covers the world until what? until the word is spoken. And in this new creation story, darkness fills not only the earth, but even the human heart, until the word appears. But then the light shines into the darkness, and the darkness cannot withstand it. Now, in verses 6 to 8, we already looked at last week, John moves from eternity past and the creation story all the way ahead to the arrival of whom? Look at verse 6. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to bear witness about the light. And that moves things forward quite a lot. But also notice that John has put a pause. The author has put a pause on using the word word. Now he's talking about the same person with a different word. What word? Light. Light is the word I was thinking about. He's talking about the same person as the light. He says, the light was not John the Baptist, but John the Baptist was sent by God specifically to bear witness about the light, the one true light of the world. And then what does verse 9 add? Look at verse 9. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. Now that's something you wouldn't know from the verses so far. Apparently, in some new way, within space, time, history, the true light, which is for everyone, was coming into this world. But what does that mean? How did that happen? What would that look like for the true light to enter into our world? John will tell us soon, but first he wants to say something else. Verse 10. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. I'm going to wait to look at some more of that next week. But needless to say, that's a tragic story. But rejection is not the whole story. Because look at verse 12. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. The light that was rejected by most was not rejected by all. Some welcomed the light, some did not hide in the darkness. Rather, they believed and ran to the light. And to all who did that, regardless of their race, ethnicity, or background, they were given the right to be called the children of God. They were born again into a new family, not through human willing or working, but through the will and working of God himself. Now to verse 14, where what was hinted at becomes explicit. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Verse 9 hinted at this. said the true light was coming into the world. But verse 14, all doubts are removed about what's being claimed. The word became flesh. The eternal word. The one and only Son of God became a human being. This is the gospel of John's Christmas story, if you will. But it's not focused so much on the events, like in Matthew or Luke. Instead, it's a direct claim about what was happening at Christmas. The word became flesh. But John doesn't stop there. Notice he says, and dwelt among us. Now, that translation, dwelt, is good. But it is easy to miss a connection to the Old Testament story, Because the verb has to do with putting up a tent. It's, It's more or less the verb form of the noun tent. But we don't have a good English tent verb, okay? So so then translations will say, like, dwelt, or took up a residence, or something like this. But once you start to think about the story of Israel and the tent, you start to see more clearly what John is saying. Throughout the story of Israel, God dwelt in the tent, or in the temple. God tented or tabernacled, or made his home in the tent with the people. Can you remember those, some of those stories of how God's glory filled the tent in the wilderness in the days of Moses? Or how God's glory filled the temple in the days of Solomon? Or of how God's glory left the temple in the days of Ezekiel? Look again at verse 14 in light of that. This is gospel news. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we saw his glory. The glory as of the only son from the father full of grace and truth. In times past, God dwelt in the tent And His glory filled the tent. And His people could walk outside and see His glory in the tent whenever they looked at it. But this time, the Word, the very Son of God, took up His residence among us. He took on our flesh and pitched His tent right here in our world. And John the Baptist, John the Apostle, and the other apostles saw firsthand His glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father full of grace and truth. Verse 15, And John the Baptist bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. Perhaps now we have a clear sense of what he's talking about. He says, Jesus was better than me because he was before me. Verse 16, For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace for the law was given through Moses. Moses, Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. God had already given much grace throughout the story of the Bible. God had already revealed much about himself and his grace through Moses. But nothing can compare with the gift God gave us when he gave us his son. Nothing can compare with the full and final revelation of God through Jesus. It's only in Jesus that we come to see fully the grace and the faithfulness of God. The law was given through Moses, and that was really good. But grace and truth came through Jesus Christ, and that is far better. John then closes the prologue with the same theme that he opened it with. Verse 18 and verse 1 reflect each other. Verse 18, no one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. Now, you may have different translations of that. There's a lot of different ways to take some of the the language in that. text. I'll just say, I like the CSB here. I'll try to read it carefully, slowly for you. No one has ever seen God but the one and only Son who is himself God And at the Father's side, he has revealed him. If you want to know all that God is like, all you need to do is look at Jesus and to keep looking. In Christ, the invisible God became visible. Now, this has been a deep dive into the doctrine of God and the doctrine of Christ. And I hope that these doctrines have been anything but dry and dusty. I know for certain that John did not think of these things as distant or theoretical. John was writing and introducing to us the person he loved, or as John would like to say, the person who loved him. Do you see in Jesus what John saw? Today, we have not seen Jesus in action like you do like in the Gospel of Mark. Uh, We haven't heard Jesus speaking like we do in Matthew, Mark, or Luke, or John. Instead, we've engaged deeply in the prologue to John's gospel, and we've just tried to let John introduce Jesus to us the way he wanted to. And what he did was unlike any other gospel. Instead of telling stories about Jesus, John begins with claims about Jesus. Claims that are absolutely crazy, unless they're true. And to recap, I would summarize the claims five, in five, five claims, just, just to say that. One, Jesus is the eternal Word, the very Son of God, the complete revelation of God in human flesh. Claim two: Jesus is the creator of all things, including us. Three. Jesus is the one and only path to life and out of the darkness. Four, the only right response to Jesus is to trust him and welcome him. And five, all who do that to Jesus become full members of the family of God. Those are are five of the main claims John makes about Jesus, and I just want to ask two final questions to us. One, do you believe all of those claims? If not, why not? What would it take to convince you? Second, if those claims are true, Like, if you say, I believe all of those claims about Jesus, what difference does that make? And to close, I'll just share a couple things I was thinking about, about some of those. Like, what difference does it make if Jesus was, is, and always will be fully God? Does that make a difference? Yes. I think it makes a lot of difference. I'll just share one that I was thinking about. That means that his sacrifice of himself on the cross is valuable enough and powerful enough to take away all our sins. Okay, to put this another way, if Jesus is who John the Apostle says he is in the prologue, then we can be assured that Jesus could really do what John the Baptist said he could do in the first story in John's Gospel. Because what did John the Baptist say when he saw Jesus? Look, that's the Lamb of God who can take away all your sin. What if the Lamb of God is in fact the eternal Son of God himself? Then I think his sacrifice of himself for me is enough. We can trust those words about the Lamb of God if Jesus is fully God. He is able to take away all our sins, to bear them all on himself. His sacrifice is more than enough to take away our sins. It can give us assurance, confidence, confidence. But what about this? What difference does it make if Jesus actually created you? Or if he created all life? Does that make a difference? It does. It makes a lot of difference. I would highlight two things. This means one, that all life matters, all lives matter, all life is valuable because Jesus is personally involved in the creation of all life. But also, that means that we are each accountable directly to Jesus for what we do or don't do with him and for what we do or don't do with the life he gives us. And then, last one, what difference does it make if Jesus is the one and only path to life and the one and only path out of the darkness of this world and even the darkness of the human heart. I think that makes a lot of difference. What, what difference does that make? I would say for myself, I better, I better run to Jesus myself because where else is there to go for help if not to him? And I better do all that I can to point others to Jesus. Because if he is the one and only path to life and out of the darkness that we see all around us, where else can they go? I better do what I can to try to point them, like John the Baptist did, to the true light who came into the world. Let's pray. Father, would you take these words and what has been a deep dive into who you are, who Jesus is. And would you make these doctrines clear to us and compelling that we might fully lean on Christ, the God-man, for the forgiveness of our sins, that we might be fully convinced that there is no other path to life and out of the darkness but through him. Lord, would you press these things into our hearts so that they may produce in us the kind of fruit you long to see. But I don't want to even close this prayer, Lord, without just saying thank you. Thank you for... Thank you, Father, for sending your Son. And we thank you, Lord Jesus, for taking on our flesh and laying down your life for our sins so that we could be forgiven. We pray all this in your name. Amen.